lies in the house. In the house. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina, a place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. That very friendly letter is from a horrible guy. Can you guess which book it's from? And I'm, there's a clue in the reading. And are you saying that Andrew Lehman is a horrible guy? Because that's who was doing the reading. No, Dracula. Oh, the book is Dracula. I'm glad that that's what it is because Andrew is, he's sort of like a reverse Dracula, you know? Like if you stand next to him in a mirror, your reflection goes away. Whoa. Yeah, he's that potent of a personality. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's true though. Lehman is that powerful. It's also true that this month, whole month, marches for Dracula, singular, and we're going to cover it here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris and we're not alone this month. We're going to be covering it with friend of the show, talented writer, game designer, raconteur, <laughs> Ken Hyde. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I thought having you on the show was a good idea because you just finished up a Kickstarter for your Dracula project. And I was hoping you would tell us a little bit about it. The project is called the Dracula Dossier. It's a campaign, an improvisational campaign for my vampire spy thriller role-playing game, Night's Black Agents. It's about burned spies uh, fighting vampires. The central conceit of the Dracula dossier is that the novel Dracula was a British home office disinformation campaign to cover up their failed attempt to recruit a vampire in 1894. The original draft of Dracula by Bram Stoker was the after-action report of this operation. The ministry cut out all of the sources and methods and then had the remaining part of the novel published. What we are doing is we are unredacting Dracula. We are putting back in the elements that reveal the secret that this was a spy operation gone wrong. The game is about you, Jason, boarding your way through fighting both the conspiracy that's running Dracula and Dracula's counter-conspiracy that is obviously his attempt to restore himself to full power in Europe. Wow. It's pretty awesome. I backed it. I can't wait to get a hold of the stuff. I think it's going to be super fun. It's crazy that this business manager from a theater wrote this novel and it has led to so many incredibly creative world building things like this and in film and plays and this this book is a starting point for so much great stuff don't some people say that Bram Stoker didn't really write it isn't that kind of a rumor that's going around uh, that was something that Lovecraft at least sort of put about and heard I want to assume he heard he's not in the habit of lying in his letters but he said <laughs> that he met a, a woman who uh, knew the guy who put Dracula into shape that it was a confused mess 
when either she got it or he got it, they straightened it out as his sort of ghostwriter or fix-up, which I don't think is... If you look at the rest of his novels, they're mm-hmm. they're they're certainly serviceable. They're uh, readable. One or two of them are actually pretty good. Lair of the White Worm, I think we can draw a, a, a curtain over because it was written at the very tail end of his life when he was dying of whatever was killing him. Yeah, post-stroke, I believe. But most of his novels are, are relatively straightforward, and plenty of people write one masterpiece and not a lot of other great novels. True. If you were a Bronte, no one would be saying you didn't really write it. Why are male novelists always being attacked? I know. What is that? (laughs) Male novelists get the respect they deserve. (laughs) I know. Actually, didn't Bram Stoker die pretty poor? I believe he had to request some dispensations from the government in order to to survive. And and I don't think Dracula paid many bills for him. In fact, I, I don't think this became a hugely popular novel until the films came out. Isn't that right? I think it was the play that actually sort of picked it off. I mean, that was okay. like a giant, huge, you know, never closes on uh, the uh, West End and never closes on Broadway type sensation. And I think that drove a lot of the sales of the books. Didn't Bram Stoker stage a version of this play himself? He did like a one night version of it. Yeah, he did it to to get the copyright of the novel for the play. Back in those days, if you didn't do a theatrical version you didn't necessarily own the copyright in the theatrical version. And so oh, weird. he had to do that so that if he wanted to adapt it as a play later on, which I suspect he did, given that, you know, he was working at the Lyceum for Henry Irving. He, he writes Dracula as a villain very much sort of in tune with the kinds of parts Henry Irving plays. You can see that he's intending to sort of have some set pieces and theatrical scenes as you read through it, but he never gets around to doing it. Legend is that Henry Irving walks in on the basically wooden read through the script in a hurry version of it and says dreadful and walks out and then that is you know the end of it and Brom can never get him to look at doing a real version of it what a tragedy yeah I heard that his version of it was four hours long and and very hard to get through but they were really just doing it to uh you know, to get that copyright. Yeah, he was he was obviously a busy guy, and he, he sort of wrote a, a few sort of interstitial bits and then ran out of time to do it and just started clipping pieces out of the galley proofs and pasting them down and calling it a play script. Wow. Is- this whole story is done, if, if you haven't read Dracula, uh, through <laughs> correspondence and newspapers. Just shut off your, your computer and go read Dracula, for God's sake. Stop right now, go read it, then come back. Either that or go and watch Dracula 2000. Same thing. Yeah, it's the finest adaptation that we know of. Yeah, I think by common... By common uh, agreement. Agreement. Sure. Let's say agreement. Fine. Let's, <laughs> let's go with the 50 cent word instead of the $3 word. <laughs> well, speaking of $3 words, epistolary is uh, what we call this type of writing. Even if it has newspaper articles in it. Yes. Well, I, so think- I thought that was only just letters. You got me there. <laughs> Zing, Pfeiffer. I mean, I know that this is a device that dates back to the 1400s, and generally it was letters. Letters would be inserted into texts in order, but a lot of times articles from the news as well. I mean, we've certainly read a lot of stuff where that happens sure. uh, in order to push the, the plot along. So, yeah, maybe you call it epistolary with articles is maybe the <laughs> correct genre for it. Well, speaking of Lovecraft, this technique was used by Lovecraft a lot, and I think it's really good for weird fiction as it gives – this sense of realism, but it also limits what information you get because you only get information from the person that's writing it. So you only know what they're going to know. And on top of that, you only get the information that they're willing to write down or to tell to whoever. If it's a letter, it's only the information that they're telling this person. So you have to really read between the lines to try and get the whole picture. And that's what's one of the best things about this story that I think is you don't really ever know what is up with Dracula, Mm -hmm. why he does the things that he does. And it makes him seem so much more alien and scary because he's working on some weird level that 
is either beyond you. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing about it, I mean, not only does is Dracula, as you say, only revealed through these records and documents assembled by his enemies, the whole story is only re- revealed piecemeal and through these sorts of not quite random, but certainly arbitrary documents. And so, although it begins by explaining that this is an exact record uh, contemporaneously taken, uh, even within the novel's text itself, it questions that because Dracula, uh, spoiler, busts in and burns all of the records and only Mina's typed copy survives. So you don't even have the original records fictively you only have Mina's version of the original right. story. And on a meta level, what this does is it simultaneously reassures the reader that he's in a real world of, the, of, the, of newspaper cuttings and diaries and phonographs. But it also creates a very mediated sense of the world's reality because you're always aware that you're reading it through someone's viewpoint. The, the narrator never just disappears. Right. It's always right. um, uh, contingent, right? Yeah, yeah. And I also think the interesting thing about writing in this way is that it allows for some time jumping to tell the story in a slightly nonlinear fashion where events will happen and then we'll roll back and get another person's internal reflection on what the event was. And then it also allows for differing points of view on some of the exact same story elements. Not quite Rashomon style because people generally agree on what's happening. But to get their specific point of view as influenced by their character is a really cool thing. And it also solves a lot of the problems of the of the sort of the weird fiction writer where the characters all have pieces of the truth, but no character until much later in the novel puts it all together and says, oh, vampires. But we reading the novel get to have that great experience of all horror readers going, ah, no, no, don't you see? It's so clear. And, um, uh, and and that's a really great way to build tension in the reader as well. I mean, Stoker is doing a lot of things and he's doing a lot of them, not quite first, but almost first in the horror genre. You know, Wilkie Collins and people like that uh, have been doing it in mysteries for a while. But this is very much a, a real revolution in terms of presenting a, a straight-up horror novel. Chapter one. Our first bit is Jonathan Harker's journal. Jonathan is a lawyer on his way to Transylvania to see a client, Count Dracula. Dracula wants to buy some property in London. Now, John is a young guy, new to the firm, so he gets sent on to the crap jobs. He's got to travel all across Europe to get there. A good part of this first chapter is him talking about his travel to Castle Dracula. And Eastern Europe at this time, still largely unmapped in certain places, unknown country. Jonathan has read that every known superstition in the world is gathered here in the Carpathians as if it were some imaginative whirlpool. Stoker had never been to Transylvania, right? No, Stoker had never been to Transylvania. The closest he'd gotten, his brother, was in the neighborhood, probably not in Transylvania, but possibly in Bulgaria and maybe even in Romania because he was serving as a medical officer with the Turks during the Russo-Turkish War. He might have gotten across the Danube up into Romania, probably, though, just Bulgaria and uh, and Turkey. But I suspect that that is one of the places, because Stoker did an editorial pass on his brother's memoir. That may have been what gets him thinking, oh, the Balkans, there's some there's some stuff going on there. And then he eventually goes out and he, and he digs up all of the travelogues and uh, and other stuff. But in the first uh, version of the, of the novel, when he starts... Uh, scripting it, he thinks he's going to set it in Styria, just like Carmilla is set in Styria in Austria. So his whole travel through this area, folks are warning him vaguely about the castle and Dracula. Mostly, I think it's a language issue because he speaks German and they speak some German as well, but mostly speak Romanian. They conveniently forget their German when they don't want to tell him things. Right. And, you know, we had talked earlier about you'll get with the way that this is written. Sometimes if somebody's writing a letter, they 
show themselves in a certain way. And then in their diaries, it might be a little different. And I thought, you know, Harker comes off as a really good guy. But since this is his diary, you get really revealing gems like the women looked pretty, except when you get near them. (laughs) (laughs) He becomes a real character. I I like him as we're getting closer to the castle. Uh, So after some traveling, he gets to an inn. An old lady gives him a crucifix to help him out, though Harker doesn't like idolatry because that's a Catholic thing and he's a, Mm -hmm. a Protestant. But he still wears it. He's English and therefore polite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, actually, I think his English politeness is one of the things that Dracula very intelligently preys upon yeah. as, as part of his capture. Now, she's saying that she wants to give him the crucifix because it's the eve of St. George's Day. And at midnight, all the evil things hold sway. So a carriage takes him up to a pass where he's supposed to meet Dracula's coach. The coach shows up and it's got a creepy driver with a beard who takes him for a ride through the woods. This is... The first hardcore weird thing in the book for me it was where it takes him around, kind of around in circles for a while. It's It becomes dreamlike in, in a way. And then there's wolves and then the driver scares off the wolves and you don't really understand what's going on. And he eventually falls asleep. When he starts driving him around in circles, isn't this because he's waiting for it to turn midnight? Is it? I thought those blue lights that are shimmering everywhere... Dracula later explains, these blue lights show off where treasure is hidden, and I assume that's Dracula's treasure, and he's going everywhere and sort of extinguishing these lights. He gets out of the coach, he puts them out, right? He's doing this over and over later after they're done driving in circles. I don't think that it's Dracula's treasure. What I think he's doing is he's going and he's uh, marking where various pieces of buried treasure are in the area so that he can ah. go pick them up later. I mean, he he's an aristocrat, and he's an aristocrat in a land that is literally dead. He doesn't have... You know, people coming and paying him his rent for farming in, you know, Dracula Valley. He has to dig up treasure so that he can spend all of his Habsburg doubloons buying London real estate. Yeah, because he's got all of his treasure at his castle. You know, that one room that later on Jonathan goes into, there's just a big pile of treasure sitting there. Yeah, and I think that this is where he gets it is once a year he goes out, he checks where there's uh, more treasure to dig up. Because obviously, you know, people have been dying in Romania since the Romans and probably well before that. Well, I had thought for some reason that he had gone out and buried it a long time ago and was just going, like that was his bank. He'd go out and dig up some when he needed it. But it makes far more sense what you're saying. Some of it might well have been stuff that he buried long ago. I mean, we yeah. don't know how what his habits are. And uh, later on, Van Helsing says he has a child mind. And so maybe that might have been his, well, I better dig a hole and bury my treasure. Oh, where did I put it? Damn it. Yeah. Wait for St. George's well, Day at again. The, at the very least, he was making a good amount of money from the uh, Dracula Valley salad dressing. A big seller at the time. <laughs> the structure of this novel is pretty interesting. To me, the story really starts when we get an introduction to the team of characters that are going to be there throughout the story. Lucy, Mina, Quincy, all of these guys. But the novel doesn't start with them. It starts by first going to Transylvania and we see Dracula's realm and we see him in his realm and all its strangeness. We meet him there. And then we take him to the modern world to see him out of context. To me, it seems like this is very similar to later monster movies like King Kong or Crocodile Dundee, where <laughs> that's a horror movie. That's a monster movie, right? But, the, but that sort of thing where we go to the, the exotic setting and then we bring it to the modern world. But is that a common way that a, a book would have been structured before then? It seems like an odd place to start. Um, I'm not necessarily sure how common or uncommon it is. One of the things that is being done in horror and to a larger extent in literature, is bringing things out of the fictive and into the real world. Uh, Arthur Machen, around this time, has also been writing sort of weird fantasy novels uh, that are set in recognizable parts of Britain and set in London, even. Mm -hmm. You've got the Barchester novels uh, by Trollope. I've actually, he he sets up an actual little fictional 
a shire and puts um, uh, railroads, uh, you know, going to London and gives you all the timetables. So this sort of creation of the fictional absolutely within the real and within the recognizably real is something that's sort of going on, I think, in, in Victorian fiction broadly. Horror fiction, to the extent it exists then, very much has traditionally been about going to the other creepy, horrible place and having horrible things happen to you and serve you right for being in foreign parts. Like Poe, for example, says that the, the place of, of horror is not Germany, but the soul. And that implies then that most horror is set in foreign parts, Germany, or Styria, as Lefanu sets uh, Carmilla. I think Stoker, starting like a conventional horror novel, you're going off into the, into the dangerous foreign part, and then he brings it into London, and that's the real moment of terror, certainly for a Victorian reader, and to a large extent for us as well. That hits on it exactly. I think that's the genius of the structure. We first get a description of Dracula in Chapter 2, after the coachman drops Harker off. He waits a very long time, and then finally is brought into the castle. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale and at the tops extremely pointed. The chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks firm, though thin. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. So an old guy with a big mustache. Why does he never have a mustache in the movies? <laughs> he also has hairy palms in the book, which they don't get. That doesn't get depicted often in the, in the movies either. I think part of it is just that men's fashion in facial hair really radically changed between 1893 and 1931 you know, when mm. uh, Lugosi is uh, playing the first legitimate Dracula. If, if you have someone in 1931 wearing a big furry handlebar mustache, it looks really weird, even more than it than it would uh, now sure. uh, with the, the return of the Civil War uh, facial hair. Yeah, I was um, going to say, now Dracula would be a hipster kind of. Exactly, he'd be hanging out <laughs> in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> even when Stoker is writing it in 1893, you're seeing fewer and fewer big, bushy, mid-Victorian mustaches. And so the mustache is maybe a little callback to say he is an antique, old mm -hmm. aristocrat of this ancient time, not a proper, uh, you know, modern-day British uh, dude with a, with either a little tiny David Niven mustache or no mustache at all. <laughs> well, Dracula's a pretty friendly guy at first. He right? really is. He comes off very cordial. Uh, he takes Harker up into the castle, uh, gives him a room, says, you know, rest up, take it easy, no problems, everything's cool. Food's prepped there, just waiting for him. Dracula, uh, he's his own servant, right? The, he was the carriage driver, and he's carrying the bags up, and he's preparing the rooms and he's doing all these things so Harker has this excellent roast chicken upon his arrival at the castle which means Dracula made that for him yeah and throughout I think Harker's fed very well which means Dracula's down there flipping through recipe cards <laughs> he's haggling with vendors at the farmer's market I mean he really is doing all of these yeah. things I presume well keep in mind Dracula's got three wives in the place I don't see them cooking though they don't seem the type maybe once in a while when he has a guest he doesn't ask for a lot but maybe they could chip in <laughs> <laughs> Look, Dracula doesn't ask for a lot. <laughs> Just your eternal soul and servitude. And some occasional cooking. And maybe cook a chicken once in a while. Would it kill you? 
Don't answer that. <laughs> so he waits all day. Dracula doesn't show up. Sun setting. Dracula shows up. He goes, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm really busy. I got all this stuff going on. I'm a busy man. I'm a, I'm a count. I got stuff to do. Dracula's looking super cr- creepy, but he's really nice and, and still cordial this whole time. I mean, we find out it's a, a scam that Dracula's playing him, but he's really good at it. He looks over the papers that Jonathan brought him and, you know, goes over the details, asks really good questions. He asks John if he's going to help him learn some English, and he also wants him to stay for a month. And John was like, whoa, I didn't think that was part of the deal, but my boss said, do whatever you have to because he's a really important client. He's new to the firm, so he's like, okay, yeah, I guess I'm going to stay for a month. And Dracula is insistent that although he will be a foreigner in England— and he's content to be somewhat anonymous. He can't be seen as an immigrant or or less than somehow. This is why he's got to have his English exactly right, even though he's already learned it quite well. He says, I have been so long master that I would be master still, or at least that none other should be master of me. And I think that's the first expression of Dracula's perhaps actual weakness in the novel is his, his vanity and his inability to be seen as less than. But Harker notices that the, the Dracula and the coachman... Maybe they're twin brothers or something. What's going on here? (laughs) It's like, I didn't see them together. They've got the exact same hands. They're the exact same height. Dracula also had a fake beard, which is another thing Mm. that is not really talked about, that he's got some kind of makeup kit that he puts on. You know. Well, this is the thing that the, I love this beginning of the book because it's something that you often forget. Dracula is super powerful. I mean, the things that he does in this novel are amazing. He can turn into a wolf. He can turn into a bat. He can control the weather, the mist. But he's very low tech in this section of the book. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's his own servants, and he preys on Harker's politeness, as we touched on earlier. Yeah. He withholds just enough information, knowing that Harker's not going to blow up and say, what the f*** is going on? Let me out of here, you know? <laughs> he just keeps going, oh, I wish he'd tell me something. There's a scene later when he Harker throws some letters out of the window, hoping that they'll get delivered to his loved ones, and Dracula marches back up with the, the letters. He's found them. And that scene, it's like he's a jail, an evil jail warden or a mafia guy or a, an abusive husband yeah. even. These small cruelties on Dracula's part are what really make him monstrous to me. It's not the manifestation of his supernatural powers, but the measured, careful, and deliberate way that he imprisons Jonathan Harker in this first yeah. part of the novel. Very end of, of chapter two, when he throws the mirror out of the window, right? Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't want, you know, mirrors hanging around revealing his draculosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's that first sort of arbitrary cruelty. But even then, this can still just be, well, you know, he's an East European aristocrat. He's been living alone in a castle. He's a little strange. It's not straightforwardly supernatural yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's another great thing about this novel is that Dracula just sort of looks like, I mean, he looks dangerous and and terrifying in the sort of, you know, Russian mafia boss way. But he doesn't actually clear cut do anything demonic for a, a surprisingly long time in the in the novel. I mean, the, the, you have to go a long way before you actually have there. I just saw him do something vampire-y. This is for real. And so the degree to which the novel lets you maintain that readerly skepticism that is so powerful when it is overthrown and finds other ways to make Dracula scary, like you mentioned, that's that, that's one of the really great things that Stoker does that I don't think people give enough credit to because everyone has read Dracula a million times or they've seen the, the movies. And so they're retrocasting their knowledge of the fact, like you say, that he has all these magic powers back to the opening of the novel and then ignoring the fact, like you say, that he is doing this sort of weird jailery type stuff. It's savage and, and uh, tyrannical, but it's still human. Yes, and and bullying and, and a lot of those human touches, even on the part of when Harker first shows up at the castle and nobody's there to meet him and he's had this weird carriage ride and he has to wait this interminable amount of time 
for somebody to come out and greet him in the night in a strange place. I think everybody can relate to something like yeah. that when you're in, a, in, in an odd situation and nobody's there to help you and that feeling of helplessness and, and anxiety of what's to come next. That to me is more frightening than say in chapter three here when he runs into the vampire women. I get more stress and anxiety about some of those small situations and the bullying that goes on than I do some of the supernatural things. Although in chapter three, the first really incredibly weird thing happens when Dracula climbs out of the, the window. He crawls out of the window like a lizard, you know, head first. He's crawling down the side of the castle. That scared me when I was a, a kid and I read this book. It genuinely scared me. Yeah, that, that scared T.S. Eliot. I mean, he, he put it in the wasteland. That's how bad it affected him. Dracula wasn't the first name for the character. I don't believe. In the in the original version, he was supposed to be Count Wampyr, W-A-M-P-Y-R. And I think that Stoker quite rightly realized that was going to give the game away if he kept exactly. that name. And then, he's, uh, and then he's reading this really sloppy, terrible history of Romania and comes across the name Dracula. And then there's a footnote below it that says, to the Romanians, Dracula means devil. And he's like, well, bam, there we go. No one is going to know this footnote. No one knows anything about Romania or Romanian history. Right. I can call this Dracula. There's like this real Dracula apparently in this Romanian history book. So I can sort of hint that maybe it's this guy. Everything's awesome. And now I have this great name. It means devil. It's just as good dramatically as Vampire, but it doesn't give the whole novel away. Now, a lot of artists have gotten mileage out of the latter part of the scene that I touched on a second ago. He's been told not to explore the castle, stay in his own room. But while... Dracula's gone. He decides to go into this chamber that seems like it used to be where women got ready, or it's definitely more feminine than the rest of the castle. His good decision is to take a nap in there. <laughs> Even though Dracula specifically says early yeah. on, don't go to sleep in any other place of this castle because right. crazy things happen here. And he goes, well, I just saw a dude crawl on the wall. Another earlier bit, when he threw out that mirror, the reason he did that is because Jonathan was shaving and didn't see a reflection of Dracula in his in his shaving mirror. He saw only Andrew Lehman. <laughs> who crossed oceans of time to be in that mirror. It's hard to suspend disbelief on that one, but he do does decide to go to sleep in this room. Right. And he has this experience where he, it's half a dream, half, half awake. He's not sure what's going on, but he sees these three beautiful women. And he wants to kiss them, and he wants them to kiss him and get closer and closer to him. And then Dracula shows up and says, hey, ladies, back off. I told you you can drink out of him later, not now. And they're like, what are we going to eat now? And he goes, here you go. And he throws in a bag that's wiggling around, and it's about the size of a kid. Yeah. Oh, no. He wakes up back in his own bed. And he's like, huh, boy, that's weird. But he does, Dracula makes mention that he's capable of love when he's addressing the women. I think that's something that he doesn't really reveal about himself anywhere else in the novel, as far as I can remember. And it's something that I think a lot of artists have gotten mileage out of. So many times the story is pushed around into a, an age-old love story between Dracula and a, maybe a woman who looked like Mina. This has happened in a couple of the film treatments. Yeah. I like it when he's just a monster. Given that he's a horrible rapist, I think that it's <laughs> better both as a horror novel and as a human document of any kind if he's a monster. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not a fan of the of the good guy vampire almost in any form whatsoever. But for goodness sake, if you want to have a good guy vampire with a centuries-defying love story, don't make it Dracula. No. Make it any other vampire. This guy absolutely straightforwardly is a horrific predator to say – Oh, but he really likes Winona Ryder is like the worst thing you can possibly do uh, to this to this novel Great. and to this character. It's just – it's beneath contempt. Uh. It, it's just an awful thing to do. So Dracula asks Harker to write a bunch of letters in Chapter 4 that he's left the castle so Dracula can send them later 
after he's left the castle. In case there's any problems with the mail, he's saying. And of course, Jonathan does it because he's English and he, he wants to be polite, but he knows that the game is up. He knows Dracula is an evil dude and bad stuff's going on, but he doesn't want to let on that he knows that, so he's just complying. There's a great line where uh, Jonathan writes down, I now know the span of my life. God yes. help me. Like, oh. oh, that's such a good line. Now, Drac also, this is a strange thing. He runs off with one of his suits. He takes one of Jonathan's suits and he theorizes that he is making appearances in town wearing his suit so that people think that Jonathan's around and doing stuff, which seems kind of crazy to me because he's an old vampire guy and he doesn't look anything like him. I think he's got to go to the grocery store to get the stuff. Of course. To cook. Farmer's market. And he's showing up in a suit and he's saying, hi, I'm Jonathan Harker. Can I have some cucumbers? <laughs> and we go, oh, he said he was Jonathan Harker. Well, he's a master of disguise. He's got fake beards and stuff. So maybe. That's true. Later on, some gypsies show up. They call them something else. What do they call them? Uh, Sgani. I mean, that that's Romani, the Roma. They come into the courtyard, which is, I guess, not uncommon. He says that wandering people will find a, a castle and sort of hang out there for a while and do some odd jobs and things and, and become a part of it, and then they'll move on again. But he gets a hold of the guy. The guy doesn't speak English or German, but he communicates that he wants him to mail some letters. So he throws down the letters. This is what Chad was talking about. Throws him down some money and the guy's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then Dracula comes right back up with the letters. It says, mm. what's going on? You know, this hurts my feelings that you would, you'd, you know, send these out. I don't understand what the problem is. Very mobster to do that too. Yeah. Why, you, why you gotta hurt my feelings like that? I thought we were friends. But the one that's written in shorthand, Dracula doesn't understand, so he just rips it to shreds. Wow, this couldn't be yours. It's written in some weird Klingon or something. We can't, we don't need this, and he just destroys it. And then, oh man, this is a real, a lady shows up screaming in the courtyard, going like, give me back my son, give me my child, and she's crying and freaking out. And Dracula just calls up some wolves, and then they tear her apart. And eat her. Yeah, he uses his harsh metallic whisper from the tower to call the wolves. It's a great imagery there. Yeah. So Harker decides at this point he's going to climb out of his window because he saw Dracula do this climbing and he thinks, well, if he can do it, I can. I think I can manage it as well. The castle is ruined in such a way that you can actually scale it. Like I said earlier, he finds this room with a bunch of treasure in there, but, but he's not living there. It's, it's like a bedroom. Yeah, Dracula isn't uh, obviously not living in there. He climbs back up to his room because he's not sure what to do. But Dracula shows up the next day, says, you know what? I'm leaving. This is probably the last time I'm going to see you. I've arranged for you to get taken back later. Then Harker says, well, actually, I want to leave right now. The politeness fades at that point because he's actually already seen when, when he did that climb through Dracula's room before, he actually found Dracula in his box of earth. Oh, right. He does, doesn't he? Apparently dead. We are so steeped in these legends now that it doesn't seem that odd. But I can't even imagine how that would blow your mind if you weren't familiar with it. Why is this guy laying there seemingly dead in a box of earth? Right. He's had it with being polite. He says, actually, I want to leave tonight, so let's do it. Dracula's like, oh, that hurts my feelings. Yeah, I thought we were friends, but okay, yeah, sure. We can go. And he goes down and opens the door, which Jonathan thought was locked. Yeah, and he goes out into the courtyard, and then there are a ton of wolves, like dozens and dozens of hungry, evil wolves snarling and ready to eat him. And they come at him, and then he just runs back into the castle, and Dracula <laughs> closes the door. Oh, you don't want to go? <laughs> oh, that's probably for the best, these wolves. You never know. They just killed an old woman the other night. They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he's stuck there, but uh, Dracula's saying he can leave the next day. And, of course, the next day is when those boxes of earth are, are finally getting shipped out yeah, some, from the castle. Some Slovaks. And these are different than the gypsies, right, Ken? Yeah, the Slovaks are from Slovakia, which is the next country north of Transylvania. They are apparently traditionally river people because the, the Pruth and other uh, rivers run down from Slovakia 
into uh, Moldavia, and so they sail around on these rivers. I think that what this is, is Stoker trying to represent that Dracula's got more agents than even Harker knows about, right? <laughs> he's, he sees the gypsies, they turn out to be Dracula's guys. Now they're Slovaks, or they're going to be Dracula's guys, and it's the sense that Dracula has sort of got this web of people all around, and also it provides Stoker with a, another little chance to sort of rehearse his, you know, guide to Transylvania knowledge and, and put things in for a little verisimilitude. Absolutely. The Slovaks laugh at, at Jonathan as he cries out the window to them. And again, it's that the abusive husband, oh, he's also friends with the chief of police. This <laughs> horrible realization. So Dracula takes off. Harker's on his own and he he makes a plan that he's going to he's going to climb out the window and just just go for it. Remember, this is his journal, so he has to write this before he actually makes the attempt. So we don't know whether or not he's going to make it. And then that's when we cut away over to Whitby and we start to learn about the lives of his fiance Mina and uh, her friend Lucy, all of the multiple suitors that Lucy has, the people that are going to form the core team that is going to confront Dracula. Well, we didn't get through as many chapters as we were hoping because this story has got too much awesome stuff to talk about. <laughs> it really does. We'll be back next week with part two of Dracula. Ken, thank you so much once again for uh, for coming on the show. I know. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. And if you get a chance, uh, pick up Ken's role-playing game, Knights Black Agents. It is available now. His supplement to that role-playing game, the Dracula dossier will be available in August. And listen to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, my podcast, which is the best non-weird fiction-centered podcast around, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> On the way out, I'm going to play a little throwback novelty rock. Since it's Marches for Dracula, this is Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein, or Dracula by the Diamonds. And that's all we have for this week. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Kenneth Hyde. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. I love to take my baby to a movie show. So I can try to smooch her while the lights are low. But she won't cuddle do a story of romance. There's only one way I've got a chance. It takes the Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein, or Dracula to put her in the mood for love. It takes the cat, girl, dog, boy, creature from the Black Lagoon to make her feel like making love. It takes a monster from outer space to make my baby want my embrace. And when I hold her, she's like a dream. If only she can hear somebody scream. Parking down in love is lame And lots of moonlight doesn't drive this girl insane She thinks that dreamy music really is a bore But I found out what she's looking for It takes the Batman, Wolfman, Frankenstein or Dracula To make her tender as can be It takes a cat, girl, dog, boy, creature from the Black Lagoon To get her making love with me If there's a madman who grows a bed bug that wrecks the world she gets romantic it's really quaint when all the other women start to faint <laughs>